Hey guys, Austin Nasso here with Working Comic Podcast, Episode 7. In today's episode, I had the opportunity to interview Susan Cupcake Jones. Susan Jones is a true road warrior. She's toured with Rob Schneider and Dana Carvey. She's also famous for bringing you know new and young comedians on the road with her and helping them hone their craft. She's won numerous comedy competitions, uh, just released her first 30-minute special on a new network called Ride TV, and um, I couldn't think of a better person to ask about you know, what it takes to be a working comic. So she really does cover it all from bar shows to theaters to NACA college shows and working cruises. So uh, without further ado, here's Susan. Do you play fun music right now? Is there music that we take out to listen to first? It's like one sound. It's like a zoo. That's it. Oh, that's I, I should probably have like I should probably have a jingle though. Yeah, then a racy. Do, 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 I wonder do, what the do. jingle would be for working comic. Work, uh, it'd probably be like working comic. The sound of no money. If if people do that, ching ching, it would be the opposite. Of yeah, what would that stuff. be? Just empty pockets, like. Yeah, you just hear like someone like <laughs> reaching into their pocket like and there's hollow. nothing. Just wind. (laughs) So, hey guys, uh, welcome back to Working Comic Podcast. I'm sitting here with Susan Jones, who is a professional stand-up comedian. She tours with Dana Carvey. Sometimes we get to, yeah, Rob Schneider, all the big guys. And you have a 30-minute special coming out soon, right? Right, yeah, Ride Network. It's a new network with a lot of conservative cowboys. Cowboys, nice. very cool. We shot it at the in Vegas, at the finals for the rodeo. So there was a lot of dirty boys standing around while we shot it. Dirty, That's... dirty men that smelt like cows and horses. Is that your typical demographic? No, no, it's not. But so it's unusual. I didn't, I didn't mind. I'm from Puyallup, Washington, which is a small town. So I didn't mind the cow smell. I got used to it. That's cool. So, how did you um? How did you first get into comedy? I was a strip club DJ at first, which sounds weird, but I was a regular DJ, and then I wasn't making as much money because radio was independent, and then it all conglomerated at once, like three people owned all the radio stations, and nobody made any money anymore. And I was a single mom, and I applied for this DJ wanted job, and it was at a strip club. Really? Yeah. I walked in, and all the, all the women were naked. And how old were you? Oh, 21, 22. How, how long did you do that? Maybe 24. 10, a decade. I, I spent 10 years in the dark with those women. But it was fun. There's a lot. You you learn to handle men as a female comic. There isn't anything that a man can do out on the floor that I can't just smack down, like, instantly. Really? Oh, yeah. So what, what would be an example? Like, what do you mean? Um, if a drunk guy heckled me, I would stop the show and say, we have an announcement to make. This isn't a comedy show. This is actually your intervention. That's funny. Your mom's, your mom's on her way. Your sister's behind you. The cameras are up there. You just have to, uh, those are called ninja stars. You have to be able to handle anything that happens in the room at any time. Seinfeld said you have to make a decision every three seconds. I'm not sure that if, it, if it's even smaller. I think it's maybe two seconds. Every every couple seconds, you got to know if that you should finish the tag. Some tags... You stop. Some you you go out four or five tags out. Sometimes you can only do the first tag and they're not getting it. You have to move on to the next joke quick. So you have to make those choices. 
Interesting. So would you say that uh, your experience like working as a DJ for strip clubbing, uh, like it tied into your ability to like, uh, you know, do well in comedy, like your crowd work maybe? Yeah, you can like, what aspect? everything. Like we were in Idaho once and a guy pulled his pants down and stood in front of me and I think a lot of female comics would what? not know what to do. Wait, where? When? What? Mm, Idaho what? Falls. Yeah. Um, what is the con? This is at a show. Yeah, and he just stood up and pulled his pants down. And, in the show. In, yeah, right in the middle. And he's in the audience. A lot of people want to compete with comics for attention. If a good heckler is someone that can write jokes, a bad heckler is someone that wants attention. And sometimes if they're not getting that attention, they'll do extreme things for that attention. What? To be the person in the room that's getting the attention. So uh, what would you do? Well, it's our job to control the room. I just said if that was mine, I wouldn't show it off. (laughs) I would put it it back away in its little hole that it was hiding in, I think. That was very (laughs) Oh, it's so cute. Look at that. Like, oh, it's adorable. I I definitely went to small members jokes right away wow isn't that like kind of traumatizing well i think that if they put themselves up on that platform where they want to compete with me they have to be ready a lot of times you can just tell them look i do this for a living and smack them down once um sometimes i say you know i can slap you from here or i I just joke accordingly but you can usually get them in one or two comebacks If, if not one thing that's really important for the young comics to know is once you go out to handle a heckler, you may have to stay out there on Heckler Island because the crowd might like you so much more as a comeback comic that when you go back to tell regular jokes, they'll just stare at you like, uh-uh, that's not, that's not what we want. Really? We want to see you come. Well, yeah, we want to see you in combat. We already saw you in Vietnam. We don't want to see you go back to Fantasy Island. We want you out here with us. So you have to be prepared if you go out into the crowd and do crowd work, that you're never going to go back. So that's why you'll see a lot of comics no waiting. Yeah, you'll see them waiting and waiting till later in their set before they deal with someone. Uh-huh. Because we know, like one time in Portland, I went out to the crowd and started like defending everything and heckling back and then tried to go back to my regular material and there was no way back. And I just looked over at the booker like, I don't know what to do. And I was like, thank you. Good night. And I, I got off stage like 10 minutes early. Really? Just cause they weren't responding well to your no, material after when you, that. When I went back to tell Joe, I mean, this is years ago. This is probably 15 years ago. Um, we actually called different things. We call that one a CR Larson. Who's a guy who's a master at crowd work and comebacks. But don't ever go out to the crowd unless you have as much material as CR did. To just, they're ninjas. You have to be able to just shoot. Because you ever get one that you get a heckler that's better than what you have to say back, you're dead. Like the crowd's totally lost respect for you. Wow. So how do you, how did you learn how to do crowd work? So you obviously like your DJing stuff help because you're dealing with people all the time. But did you? ever like think about okay i'm gonna go out and do material today or i'm actually gonna work on you know building up a skill for crowd work Did I mean, you the best thing to like do that? as a feature is to you you're given a feature is given 30 minutes i mean usually it's an mc a feature and a headliner and the the mc is usually 10 or 15 minutes the feature is usually 25 30 minutes and the headliner is usually 45 minutes to an hour 
So as a feature, your job really is to just fill the time. The headliner's coming up. Um, and that's a good a good three or four or five years out on the road where you should just really work on your material and let the headliner handle the crowd. But if somebody stops the show to the point where the show can't, you know, they're just screaming at you, like, um, what do you think you know? You're young. You're going to you're gonna have to look at who you are and make up jokes to combat that. Like, you know what you're going to get. I know what I'm going to get. Being a big girl, um, sometimes they yell out, things about my weight I have to have you have to prepare that we're set comics we're not improv comics if I prepare for that I write jokes for if a waitress drops the table if the microphone and we we drive eight hours sometimes to a show on the road we have lots of time to drill each other back and forth and they call it riff riff, yeah yeah yeah. riffing back and forth so when I take a young comic out on the road I'll say you know what are you gonna do when the mic breaks what are you going to say if someone drops a tray? What are you going to say if somebody... And we practice that back and forth. So you have kind of like set, like, I don't know, like tons of jokes for every scenario. Yeah, it's why it's called happen. a set. It's not called a flow. Wow. It's called a set. And I mean, that's a totally different skill set. I mean, because you're, you're road comic. You do a lot of road comedy. Like, you're on the road a lot, right? Would you consider yourself a road comic? Um. Yeah, I mean... Road comic, but I work clubs, so I'm a club yeah. comic, and I work theater, so I'm a theater comic, and I do showcases, so I'm a showcase comic, but I'm a contest comic. I win contests. So it's also, it doesn't matter. It's just whatever context. Yeah. Um, I like to compete, and that I always tell the young guys, contests are a whole different, it's like golf, you know, doing long shows are your drivers, but doing short shows, you just take one line from each one of your bits and you remold them into a showcase set. Yeah. So that's just greatest hits. Bam, 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 bam. And that's how you win a competition. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. So you just said a lot of things, right? Like you're a road comic, theater comic, club comic, uh, contest comic. So there's all these different domains of comedy. Like you're still doing stand-up comedy, but it seems like each one re- requires a different skill set. Can it you kind of walk me through the differences? Yeah. So a bar comic you're, you walk in and you have no idea what your atmosphere is going to be like. It's uncontrolled. Luckily, you'll have a light and maybe a stage and maybe a stool. Sometimes sometimes I've had a, a milk carton on the floor with a pool light shining on me uh, and a mic that you know is the karaoke mic that you're just pulling over trying to, which is a lot different dynamic than a stage mic. Yeah. They're set for a different different trebles and different so bass and different. how do you prepare for that you learn how to work every mic you, you the only way you could prepare for it is to do every one of those rooms once mm-hmm. you know to go to wyoming and go to north dakota and go but by the time you come back if you do six weeks on the road you'll come back you've done 38 different venues and you know different stage lighting you know different a lot of times we'll reach up and grab one of those can lights and shine them on us just so we have light you'll find or you'll run over to the other side of the room and do the jokes from there because that's the only place that there's a spot that you're standing under Uh so the most important thing for comics are the mic and the light they ought to see your face like they have to be able to see your expressions that's like 20 percent of you you have great face thanks (laughs) yeah you get good face you guys can't see him because it's a podcast but um, my Susan face, thinks I'm handsome. Yeah. Well, you are. You're like <laughs> one of those Disney character hands. You're like, guess, I'm Gaston. You're like that. 
People tell you that, right? Like, like no one's ever said I'm like yes, son. Like Disney character? No, friend? I. I mean, I was always. I grew up. I was chubby and I had acne and I never. Ah, oh, see, I'm a mom, so complimenting you isn't like weird, creepy. Yeah. It's like mom, uh, self-esteem thing. No, you know you're handsome. Like, I think I had self-image issues. Really, as a young one? Probably, yeah. Oh. I did for sure. And I, I wasn't. I'm still. I'm like. I feel like I'm just like. I don't know, growing up, maybe I'm a little more handsome. And well, I'm you, like, I don't want to be like, I'm handsome now. <laughs> Look at me. You can't let the audience know your weakness or you'll be in trouble. Don't ever let them know that you're in, like, had... Weird self-image issues. Yeah. How fat? Like, fat, fat? Uh, did they kid you in school? Kick me? No, kid you. Did kid they kid me? Oh, like, make fun of me? Yeah. Um, I was like, so, I don't want to make this about me. Uh, so, I, I'll tell you briefly. So... In fifth grade, I was like 150 or 60 pounds. Oh, that's good for that's roly poly. Like, I, and I'm like five two in fifth grade. That's cheek pinching fat. Yeah, but I was like chubby. I had like a big belly. And... That's like pumpkin at thanks, you know, like Halloween. Like, and I would always try to be funny. Like, I always like I thought you had to, to make uh, people like you. You had to make them laugh. And that's Those like people make not the best true comment. at all. That's I. That's what taught me how to be funny. But people don't like you because you're funny. I people like you're funny. I said you're handsome. Oh, thanks. <laughs> no, you're funny too. But yeah, I don't know. Well, I got bigger later, but I think my high school career was good. I think that self-esteem is definitely developed through those years, though. But I built a living and an act off of a confident fat girl. I mean, at my highest weight, I was almost 600 pounds. So I had to learn how to tell. That's another thing is... They used to groan my fat jokes. So I had to learn how to tell fat jokes confidently. And sometimes you have to find a way to tell jokes that you can't tell. Um, someone told me you got to write a joke to tell them you know that you're fat. So I wrote a joke specifically if my fat jokes weren't working. I would say, look, there's some people that climb a mountain. And there's some people that have a picnic at the park below if you're a mountain climber, bring me a snow cone because I'll be blowing the park ranger. So <laughs> sometimes you got to write, and it was dirtier. You get cleaner like the longer you do comedy because you want to work corporate events. Those those pay a lot more. Casinos pay a lot more. So you clean up eventually. But yeah, so you go out to the bars and you learn how to handle different environments and different. You don't have an MC at a lot of them. Some of them you don't even have a, an opener. Which is weird when you show up and you're the only one. And you're like, yeah, you're following the band from down the street. <laughs> Those what? are the worst. Opening for bands are the worst. Because the people aren't even sitting down. Yeah, they're like listening to music or dancing. And then you're like, all right, let me like make you sit down yeah. and pay attention and like not worst. enjoy yourselves anymore. <laughs> they're the worst. Yeah, opening for bands is really, really bad. They're like, well, yeah, we decided to put you in front of... Well, are the people going to sit down now? No, they're just going to stand there and talk and hold their drinks. You're like, well, how long do I? Well, we thought you could do 45. And you're like, what? And yeah, because they're music people. They don't understand the concept of stand-up time. Yeah, or one time I showed up and they're like, okay, you have to um, step on top of these um, cement bags and then onto the plastic chair and onto the scaffolding. And that's the stage. And I just looked at them and I was like... Um, you know, I probably weighed 540 pounds and I was like, I am not going up on the plastic chair. You know, fat people don't, don't fear dying. We fear lawn furniture, like <laughs> get a break. So I just told the guy, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. And then I walked over, I took the mic and I moved the light and I stood right in front of the 
scaffolding and did the set like on the floor. I was like, there was no way I was climbing. I'm not climbing up. I'm not working or sweating to do my set. I'm a stand-up comic. That's, That's amazing. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do cardio to get up to the stage. Um. So you mentioned bar shows, totally unpredictable. Like, could be weird. You'd be opening for bands. So it's just kind of like just do a lot of them, and you'll yeah. And you have to deal with the regulars. Like those customers pretty much think they own that bar. So you want to treat the customers in a bar like with respect. And then when you do the clubs, you have a bouncer that works the room or a club manager. So they want the show to go, they want it to flow. They want to keep selling drinks, keep selling food. So they don't want you to heckle or offend people um, so that they have to leave or someone has to ask them to go. And usually like you'll have a little code. Like if someone gets out of hand at a, at a club, you can just say like at the underground or less, you can just say, somebody get this guy a cab and the staff will make sure they get that guy out of there. So you don't have to ruin your set. I mean, those people have paid 15 or $20 to see your show. Bar shows are like free, you know. Yeah, so it's a different drinks. experience yeah. for people. If you come out and eat, we'll give you two drinks and a free comedy show. Free shows are the worst because there's no value to what, you know, they haven't paid money. They, they're not losing anything to yell at you. Or, But theaters are great because it's all about material. You're not really interacting with the crowd. They came to sit and watch. They're very different than a club. Yeah, they've usually paid 30, 40, $50 to see a theater show. It's a different, whole different environment. They came out for a show. How How many people are usually in those kind of theater rooms for perspective? You know, the small theater is like, a small town theater is 300, but then you get up to the bigger, every casino has a theater venue now. So, you know, Dana's 1,500 people, Rob Schneider, it's up there 1,100, 1,200 people, and they've just come to see the show. And on those shows, it's not my job to shine. It's my job to make sure time is taken up so that people get value for their 60, 80, $90 tickets. So they know, they're not there to see me. They're, see, they're, they're there to see Rob Schneider or Dana Carvey. Or, so my job is to go out, like Rob doesn't let me swear at all. Like he'll be like, just go slow and just, you know, get me out there. And so they don't want you to, to suck all the energy out of the crowd, but there's no funner thing in the world on a Saturday night than saying live on Saturday night. Here's Dana Carvey. I mean, that's, that's a little girl from Phillips dream, but their audiences, those people came and paid 60, 70, $80 to see those guys. So they just laugh at bam, boom. Everything you say is just huge. Like, cause they know what they're coming for. Yeah. They're there for that. Like they didn't show up at their favorite bar on a Friday night to find out there was a, you know, 450 pound standup comic female that's interrupting their basketball game. A lot of times they'll leave the TVs on and the, you got to battle the finals for the NBA or the, you'll walk in and it's their soccer bar, which is weird. Like, I don't, soccer people are kind of are, yeah. so, are you a soccer guy no yeah no. soccer people are just weird like who's soccer people in the u.s are people i don't know I mean, can't you tell you European. don't need sound even so they'll leave like eight tvs on that you're competing with and you'll be standing under like the finals of some horse race or yeah what that's bang. crazy yeah i mean the best thing you can do is ask them you know to shut all the tvs off and then you piss off all the nba and the nfls and the LMNOZs like <laughs> so they go crazy when you shut off their games but a lot of people aren't in bar shows they're not there to see comedy 
I didn't know there was a show tonight. So what do you do to combat that? Like, how do you do well at those shows? You got to be funny. And they, they decide if you're funny the first few seconds. You have to be funny in the first few seconds. Is there something you do to ensure, like, what's your go-to to be like, I need to win these people over? Um, when I was single, I used to come out on stage and say, I'm not a single, I'm a double wide. Um, which instantly tells them, oh, she's going to do fat jokes and it's going to be fun. Um, a lot of times if they're eating, I would say, you need to put that away. That's like porno for me. <laughs> You've got to have that one line that says who you are and tells them you're funny within a few seconds, especially if you're going to win in contest. It's almost like an elevator pitch, but for a stand-up comic. Yeah, especially if you're going to win competitions. I won the um, Hard Rock Casino Comedy Competition. And you're battling, they called that a cage match because you're battling with some of the best guys that can throw down and you gotta, I gotta sling jokes hard. I'd say like a dude, but I don't want to offend women, but I've always wanted to be known as a comic, just a comic, like human comic. Yeah. Like no engendered. No, there doesn't need to be any gender because funny is funny. Like if you can bring your genders into it for jokes and stuff, but if you make it all about. Uh, being a female, you're going to alienate half of the audience is, is male. Like you want to make sure your set is balanced, that you write a joke for that, that applies for everyone, which is hard to do. Sometimes you got to balance, right guys? Hey ladies. Like you got to go back and forth. Um, but it certainly is a time for change for all of us. I'm older. I never, we never brought a lot of sexuality to the stage, but it certainly is definitely it's everywhere now you have to be really careful about what you say that's very true so um how does a contest show differ from a club and a bar and theater well it's all a lot of it can be one off stage with confidence um because it, it you only get five minutes usually in the beginning or three minutes to really show who you are and if you walk into a room with confidence you can really get in the heads of the other and it's experience for, for competitions. But knowing the audience and knowing what you can deliver and how fast, how many laughs per minute, they call them laughs per minute, yeah. how many you can get in a five-minute set. Um, they actually have a, a program that'll show you how many laughs. You can put your set in and it'll show you how many laughs per minute that you Really? Get. Mm-hmm. What is that? I don't know. Is actually a program that... Yeah. Well... Like machine learning, evaluate your yeah, it'll comedy. Ev- yeah, it'll evaluate your set. Did it's, you notice that? I don't know what it's called. That's my husband in the background. Yeah, no, there's a guy that put it out. Um, I will find that. I'm gonna make a note to find that. Yeah. And link that. Laugh. It's uh, I don't now Laughs we're googling. We're googling minute. on the podcast. Wait, that's great. I don't know. I could call people. And is there a target? You're like, I need to get this may last per minute. This LPM. Yeah. Yeah, there's... Um, Do people use this? Or is this like only you yeah, use it? Or? <laughs> I, mean, I, think, I think people did before to figure out That's their smart. sets. Some trainers. There's people that'll coach comedy. Like do classes. There's books you can take. Like if you're just starting to figure out... Judy Carter's Comedy Bible is a really good book for people that start. I heard she's writing a new one. Interesting. Judy Carter's... Comedy Bible? Comedy Bible. It's like a workshop book for people that are just starting to figure out 
how to do stand-up comedy. So they're like Tony Robbins of comedies out there. Oh, Wait, yeah. why are you just going to change your beliefs about comedy? Wow. <laughs> yeah. And Think you're funny, say you are. Yeah, Louis Anderson and Kyle Cease tried to do a comedy boot camp where they'd try to turn people in a weekend into comedy, into comics. And my answer to that was, oh, yeah, there's. I heard there's a pill that you can take and lose 100 pounds on a Saturday, too. That just doesn't happen. Um, one of the best letters for any comic that's starting out to read is Doug Stanhope's comedy death camp letter. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a really good um, letter about how you can't just take a comedy class and become a comic in a weekend. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually started with a, I mean, I, the second time I started doing comedy, well, the first time I did it, I did it at like a random show at like a summer camp. But the the second time. I did a class in New York City, and it was pretty, like, kind of scammy. It's like $400. There were Whoa. 25 pe- other people, um, and we'd do two-minute sets, and everyone would give feedback, and it was so dumb. But it got me to do it. That's crazy. $400. You wouldn't make that in the first three years. Exactly. Just kidding. No, but it was, it was pretty brutal. Did but you, it got me to do it. Did you learn anything? No. Um, I learned uh, anti things. They're like, don't do open mics. I'm like, what? Don't do open mics. They said there the guys like open mics might be a little harsh. Just keep doing the classes. Such a scammer. They are harsh. That's 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 the point. Mics. That's where you get better though. That's how they weed out the people. Um, one crazy thing is you can show up at an open mic and there'll be groups and the next year none of them will be there. Like I think one out of every ten maybe make it. A couple years, it just uh, it the attrition rate is high amongst people that try it and then stick to it. That's interesting. So it's that tough. Puts... It's rejection. Open mics are rejection. I mean, yeah, it is better to go find headliners and get on real shows that real people that went to real comedy shows because open mics are comics usually telling jokes to other comics and it's a bad uh, indication on who's gonna laugh at your jokes. Uh huh. I mean. Comics aren't really the best audience to tell you whether or not that joke's going to work. So I have friends that they're comedians and they're hitting so many open mics. and But they're not necessarily hitting people up to get on shows and stuff. Do you think that... I mean, from my perspective, it seems like only doing open mics, like you're going to get better, but you're going to get better faster doing shows because you're getting more yeah, feedback. Yeah, I mean, the toughest thing is a lot of them get really dirty. And then... The, the comics will laugh at really dirty, dirty stuff. Uh, you know, your grandma and the dumpster and the cat stuff. And that's not an indication of what you're going to get paid to do as a comedian. Do- no casino is going to pay you to talk about having sex with your grandma and your cat. And, you know, dumps like it, no one's going to pay for that. That's true. So what bad habits have you noticed that uh, comedians develop maybe in just... When they're caught in the open mic cycle of the uh, purgatory of open mics. Overselling, because it's comics, listening to comics, you can tend to oversell a joke. Like, am I right? Am I right? Am I right? You guys know what I mean, right? Am I right? You're like, ooh, those are all just extra words trying to convince somebody that your joke's funny. The most important thing I think I can say to a comic when they're young is, are you a joke asker or are you a joke teller? Because if you're really telling a joke... You don't need to explain it and you don't need to, right, right? 
because it's funny when it stands on its own. Like as a big girl, I can I can say this joke. I was walking across the street and this guy stopped me and he said, "Ma'am, you're out of breath. Do you have asthma?" And I said, "No. Do you have glaucoma?" Like you can't see that I'm fat. I don't need to go right. Am I fat? Huh? You guys think you guys know what I'm talking about, right? So if a joke <laughs> really hits, you don't need to oversell it. You don't need to beg for the laugh. No, and that's a joke asker. You guys think I'm funny? You guys thought that was funny, right? Isn't that funny? Isn't it funny when, right? Huh? You guys get it? Are you are you with me? Or when they tell a joke and they just they look at the audience like, you know, are you guys with me? Are you listening to me? Is anybody out there? You guys don't get, and they blame the crowd. Blaming the crowd is the worst thing that you can do because you're insulting them. Like, oh, you guys just don't understand what I'm talking about. Don't you have Netflix? Yeah, everybody has Netflix. Your joke wasn't funny. That's the problem. Yeah. Now you've just invited. The other thing is they ask questions. Like, asking a lot of questions to an audience is your worst enemy in inviting conversation from the crowd. Like, how many of you guys have rode on the bus? Come on, we know almost everyone in here has probably rode on a bus once in their life. So you have to rewrite the joke to say, we've all had that experience on riding a bus next to the smelly guy. See how shorter that is and confident? You're telling them. Yeah. You're telling them, I know you're smart and you've had the experience of riding on a bus. I'm not going to be stupid and ask you because it's embarrassing for people to raise their hand. And they don't really want to interact. Most people are afraid of public speaking. Like yeah. 99% of the America would rather die than do what we do. Yeah. So asking them questions to interact is only for their own security to try to get reactions. So the less questions you can ask in a set, like you shouldn't ask any. If you're in a theater, you can't ask any questions. You're so far from the audience. So eventually you're going to have to rewrite those jokes. If you want to do a TV special, you can't ask the audience. Yeah. I mean, you can't be like, hey, everybody at home. <laughs> <laughs> they're not, not going to react and then to they you. show the like camera won't show the audience member like confused like no, in the TV set you have to tell them you didn't get on that stage because you thought you weren't funny so you, you know you're funny because you got on the stage so tell them what you want to tell them don't ask them if you're funny because they're going to reject you if you look insecure you have to show complete joke teller I'm a joke teller I have the microphone. I'm going to tell you people when to laugh. And sometimes if they don't laugh, I'll hold my hands up just like this, which is an open, you know, basically if you put your hands up in the air, that's just an open invitation to say, you know, a conductor would, would do. We're basically conducting them and you're laughing, you're laughing. Hey, you're laughing. You can control them with your hands just as much as your face and just as much with your jokes. That's interesting. Um, so maybe for somebody that wants to say someone's like uh, you have a person who's like really funny around their friends and make all their friends laugh and they're like the funny person, right? How can, what advice would you give that person and what skills would they need to pick up to succeed at stand-up comedy? I mean, Macklemore didn't say it takes 10,000 hours because it doesn't. It takes 10,000 hours to master anything. If you want to learn how to play guitar and be a master, it's going to take 10,000 hours. So... You have to put in a good 5,000 before you're good. Um, it's still a craft that you have to learn. It's still the pausing, timing is everything. So you have to just get up up as many times as you can, as much as you can. Make friends with the people that are doing it for a living and find out how they're doing it for a living. No one ever got discovered 
and then got to go to Hollywood and then they wrote your hour for you and then put you on TV. I mean, the fantasy that people are just going to be like, oh my God, you, I'm discovering you. No, that didn't happen to anybody. Nobody had less than, even Jeff Dye got, who did Last Comic Standing, got mm-hmm. third place, but then right away got signed by Barry Katz and right away got, you know, hauled into Hollywood. Um, he was still almost five years in. Gabriel Rutledge is someone who's doing a lot of television, a lot of festivals. He's doing great. He won the comedy competition, I think, four or five years in. You're still got those four or five years to develop your voice. I mean, you, you don't even know who you are yet. Mm-hmm. And the base, the first thing you can figure out is if, like, Pat Wilson's a huge booker. She books a lot of military gigs, a lot of casinos. If she called you right now and said, Hey, Austin, you know, I'm looking for a host or MC. Tell me who you are in three words. Who I am in three words? Yeah. Uh, I am. Can so, <laughs> a year from now, you're going to know a little bit further who you are. But two years from now, you're going to be like, oh, man, I'm a spunky, tall, good looking, confident. You're going to have these, um, you know, I'm. you're going to have more definition because your voice is going to be more developed. I would say comedian, entrepreneur, software dev, but that doesn't describe my personality. That, right. Those are like occupational. No, if she needs to fit you with two other comics, she needs to know if you're witty, you know, what words describe you. I mean, I am confident, flirty, fat girl. I know that if you go to my, if you go to my show, you're going to walk out going, man, she's so confident and so flirty. How does she get away with it? Being so big. It's just so, it becomes so obvious who you are eventually. Like you'll find that the more you do and you'll find that in Idaho and Montana and Wyoming and the more you're out on the road, you'll discover, oh man, I'm the tech guy. Like if yeah. you're the if you're the witty tech guy that's funny, you're worth thousands of dollars to Microsoft. They pay people to do conferences and motivational speaking and they that's if you're clean now, now, if you're the clean, you've decided I'm not doing any dirty jokes. Now you're the clean, confident, witty tech guy. You're that guy. That guy makes a lot of money. That guy gets to tour all over doing every club. If every club knows you're clean and that reputation gets out and you start working corporate stuff, that's, that's the path that you want. I mean, that's super money. So this is like you think of the comedy brand side of things you're like a brand yeah the quicker you brand um yourself the more you can focus on that's all i want to do you don't spend time on the dick jokes you don't spend time on the you know they call that caveman comedy things that a caveman would say ooh that's my stick my dick my on the wall ooh uh, <laughs> me smear poo poop jokes you know dick jokes and poop jokes that's caveman stuff if you decide your first year in Travis Nelson is a really good example of that. Travis worked super clean, four years in, he's touring all over the country, working clean, doing clean shows, doing clean venues, doing his reputation super clean. They know he, they can put him anywhere. Chase Mare, same guy, super, super clean. Are we looking at the... No, yeah, it was up here. Oh. <laughs> I'm podcasting. We have their podcast gear out. But... I know that I can't do, um, because I'm flirty and funny and um, my nickname's Cupcake, you know, they expect a fun show. I know that if I stop in the middle of my act and do some Trump jokes, they're going to look at me like, whoa, we didn't come here. We left, we left home so that we wouldn't have to listen to politics and 
we're not on Facebook right now, so we don't have to hear about Trump. They don't. They don't want to hear that from me. Yeah. But if you're a Lewis Black, they paid for that. They expect you to do at least fifteen or twenty minutes on the president. Like if if he didn't, they'd walk out of there going, I can't. Dana Carvey. Like if Dana doesn't do George Bush and doesn't do his Trump, they people would walk out of. In fact, Dana has it hard because people will yell out, "Church lady." chopped broccoli and he's amazing he just stops in the middle of it and goes into that character he'll do it right away he'll so if they ask for it he'll just do it he he's won't be right. like shut up i don't want to do the character no no right away i feel like that's a little unorthodox that's like not common right well, some people get annoyed by that they're like i don't want to do these characters i do on tv or whatever yeah but he's an amazing those guys are amazing guys i mean they know that the audience and the people are all that matters those people buying tickets matter there's a great if when you're starting comedy there's a great uh sit down interview show it was called funny business that i think it was ricky gervais chris rock mm -hmm. louis ck and seinfeld and yeah. they all sat down and they were talking and they were talking about um seinfeld says they want the greatest hits and dana feels the same way like they want chop broccoli and they want church lady and they want george bush um, but Louis C.K., uh-uh, he was a, he was a new hour every year. And he's like, nope, I throw it away. I don't do it. And, um, Ricky Gervais was like, yeah, every once in a while, I'll give him a little bit. And Chris Rock was like, yep, I gotta do it. Every, you know, every few bits, I gotta throw in something that's old because it's the greatest hit. So I, I think if you went to a Journey concert and they didn't sing, that's old for you, but and a journey. Your parents probably listened to Journey. If you went to a <laughs> Journey concert and they didn't do some of their greatest hits, you just sit there and be like, "We didn't come here for this new shit." That's true. So it's hard to figure out, like you know, when I first started, I'd do this joke about wanna roll a fatty, and my website was wanna roll a fatty, and it was a fat girl slash weed joke, kind of a you know, hey, you wanna roll a fatty to the pot smoker guys, and it's like I don't want to do that joke anymore. But every once in a while, I'll be at a show and someone will yell out, want to roll a fatty? And you're like, oh, Jesus, I got to do the joke. So I think we put ourselves into catchphrases and situations where if the audience wants it, you should probably just give it to them and then move on. But what Dana does is he'll go right into that bit and he'll do it for four or five minutes and then move on. And, and the intelligence it takes... To be able to stop what you're doing, do a whole nother bit, and then go back to something else. And you're dropping what you were doing before. Like, once I saw him right in the middle of a bit, and somebody yelled out, chop broccoli. And he went right into the chop broccoli. Now you've burnt that one bit. You can't go back and finish what you were doing. So you have to have hours of material to do that. Hours. Because... Like when you first start, you're like, I got to fill 20 minutes and I only have 17. I know that I'm going to stretch right here. You don't have time to drop a joke if somebody interrupts you. You have to finish that out even if it doesn't work. He was just dropping stuff and moving on and dropping stuff and moving on. Just, wow. Yeah, it's, it was amazing. Like, you don't even care. You're just like, whatever. Nope, he didn't even. It could be a five minute bit. He just get, drop know. it. So the cool thing about um, Dana is that I've been taking his sons out. They're both starting another legacy of the carvey generation and dana's mother was an entertainer so they're they're third or fourth generation um entertainers now so 
they're doing a set together, brothers on a stage. Yeah, like, that's interesting. Yeah. How does that work? Um, it, you know what's amazing is I would think that they'd go one line, one one back and forth, but each night one of them will do one, a different line from a bit, and that totally blows my mind. I think that they've just spent so much time. I call it um, bro dependency. Like, yeah, they're just um, like synced up so well. But I don't think I could do it on stage with another comic. I mean, I've hosted things where there's two people on stage and you got to wait for the other one to talk, but constantly be trying to tell a joke with two people at the same time. It's kind of amazing to watch. That's interesting. So I want to finish up um, the other question I asked, and then I'm actually super interested in uh, the comedy house and like, I want to talk about, you know, you working with the Carvies and more about that. But so I'm interested in, um, I, I mentioned that, you know, you know, what would a, a, what advice would you give an aspiring comic? So it'd be obviously like the 10,000 hour rule totally applies. Like you're doing, you're hitting tons of mics and you're just doing it right. Um, beyond that, maybe after, um, you know, at what point are you starting to think about specific skill to work on? Like, do you ever think about like, I want to work on this, this, and this, or are you like uh, just coming up with new jokes or are you more methodical about it? No, I think that you, you have to start. I mean, there's a rule of three. Like if you're, um, you're giving examples, don't give more than three. There's just things that you have to learn and it's a mentoring industry. So finding people that you really like, like other comics that you like and other comics that are funny that you think are funny. Trying to tour people you don't think are funny is almost impossible because constantly they're like, what do you think of this? And you're like, I think it's not funny. And you, it, that's not going to work. You got to find, like, you'll find your, um, like my buddy Sam DeMaris from Texas. I can write with that guy all day long. Um, Seinfeld for every episode, think about it, for every 23 minutes, that's that's it. He had 12 writers. So find yourself people that get you. And let them tag your stuff and try it. Try everybody's tag. If a headliner gives you a tag and you don't go up and do it, he will never give you another tag. The first thing he'll think is, oh, man, that guy thinks he's too funny. He doesn't need my joke. There's so many people that I have a joke about um, reality show. And Gabriel Rutledge came up to me and he said, no, no, man, it's one spoon. And I tried that tag and it just kills so if somebody gives you a tag that's a headliner, make sure you try it. At least try it. They probably know what they're talking about. Like I used to do a joke about big people getting married and the colors for the wedding were pralines and cream. And that's funny, but a comic Riggs came up to me. He used to own a club in Tacoma, came up to me and he said, no man, it's sour cream and onion. And so now I say the colors for her wedding were sour cream and onion. And it just blows up. So you trust the people around you, yeah. let them, let them write and help you. Like I've seen this young generation where they're like, no, it's my voice and it's my act and I'm not going to let anybody touch it. And I don't know. <laughs> you're like, wow. Seinfeld wasn't that, it didn't have that ego. Like, are you, are you better than Seinfeld? Cause he had 12 Emmy award winning writers. So let people um, help, let people tag. That's called a tag. If they give you a tag for your, yeah. just try it, man. It's no biggest, bigger compliment in the world than having somebody write for you. They've seen your character, they get your your vision, and they've added to you. I mean, that's just frosting. So 
a lot of them, uh, young comics don't want people helping them. And it's like, mm, why? You're going to have writers eventually. If you're on a sitcom, you're going to have 10 writers. That's cool. Um, so what, what does the typical, like, what are the stages in career for a stand-up comic? And like, you know, after, I mean, I guess it totally changes for everyone, but if there were a general outline, what would you say it's like, what's like the life cycle of a Yeah, it's career? so different now with the out-of-the-box marketing because, you know, when I first started as a comic, there was just one path, like you had to get to The Tonight Show and that was it. I mean, there was no computers when I, when I started, I think there was, I don't even think there was MySpace. Um, and then MySpace came along and changed everything for Dane Cook. Yeah. Dane, Dane Cook, um, you know, became the MySpace comic. He, he formed a MySpace for each state and basically had, I think he had 30 accounts that had a million people each on him because he bought those keys that added and added and added. And he figured out how to let the fans find the venues. And then Stanhope, Doug Stanhope came in after that. And Doug basically picked, you know, 50 weeks a year, let the fans find the venues. The fans built their own Stanhope um, fan pages in each city. And he did bars. He didn't rely on clubs at all. He relied on the fans to find bars that fit his needs for the states that he was working in. And then they would, you know, get the word out themselves and they would bring so many people. He built an army. So now like Angelina Johnson, Angelina Johnson, is that how you're saying Angelina? The, I'm not sure. The nail lady. I mean, she was oh, a YouTube yeah. sensation and she got, you know, the first, she was the first like non-comic to really get millions of hits on YouTube. And then the clubs were like, wow people want to see her perform this. And she was like, she had to pay somebody, I think, to put together the set for her on how to, she wasn't a comic, I don't think, when she first started. I'm not absolutely positive, but, and she, people would just stand in line to come see her. So there's so many different routes now, but it used to be that if you got on The Tonight Show and Johnny brought you over to the couch, you know, and sat you down, Johnny Carson used to host The Tonight Show. That um, <laughs> if you went over to the couch, you know, that that was the big um, thumbs up from Johnny and that, you know, the clubs would book you after that and you could fill venues. But there's so many late night shows now and now there's so many um, ways to get on. You can actually film your own Netflix hour and submit it to Netflix and see if they'll like, you know, if they'll buy it from you. So there's just so many different ways. Um, the grinding way is definitely building your first half hour and opening for people until that's the best advice is open until they can't follow you and they'll, they'll come tell you if you're so strong that a headliner can't follow you, they'll walk over and go, dude, I don't want to follow you anymore. Like when are you going to start headlining? That's the best thing to do is just build a hot half hour. But nowadays you can build 12 minutes and go down to LA and showcase. And if you've got a really good look, you know, they'll put you on a showcase set on Comedy Central where they're, you know, just five minutes each of each comic. Mm -hmm. um, Netflix just did one where it was 12 minutes each of each comic. So comics with 12 minutes are making it still. Last comic standing, a lot of those comics didn't have hours. America's Got Talent, you can get a cameo or you can get an audition. You can get on camera and that's a credit. Last comic standing credit and clubs have been booking comics with credit. So... They didn't necessarily have an hour of material, so a lot of them would go out 
and get those dates and not have legs. So you have to put more comics in front of them. There's just so many ways to do it now. That's interesting. So, uh, someone who's just starting, what would, what should they be thinking about when figuring out their path and their first steps? I mean, you gotta ask yourself what kind of comic you want to be. If you're going to be a clean comic, if you're going to be a dirty comic, it's one of the first things because it, they're different rooms that you get to work. So a lot of comics will be dirty comics and then four or five years down the road, they'll clean their act up and they've wasted four or five years. Do you have to be one or the other? Eh, I mean, they're not. They're Can you have a clean venues. hour and also have a soft, I do. dirty hour? I Because I, I spent that time as a dirty comic and I came out of working at the strip club. They said, write about what you know. I mean, I wrote about the girls in the club. It was pretty dirty when I first started. And then I realized there were all these stages that I wanted to work and I wasn't working on them. So I had to, you know, redo everything and tweak it and learn how to write the clean joke and then dirty joke if it was a, a bar room. But it took me a lot more years. And we have outstanding clean comedians in the Pacific Northwest. Kermit Appeal, Brad Upton, Susan Rice, Art Crew. David Crow. So we have great examples of people to go watch. I mean, we have some, some of the best comics for our clean hours live in the Pacific Northwest. Nice. So that, that's interesting. Oh, what other decisions besides clean or dirty? What well, you got to decide if you want to do, decide? I mean, if you want to do sitcoms, if you want to do, um, if you want to be an actor, a comedic actor, I mean, that's a different story because you can just put together a showcase case and you know, go to LA and showcase, and they can develop your character. Like NBC will ask you, you know, what what do you see happening? And if you have a couple show ideas, um, you know, they can develop you. Ron Funches went from, you know, working as a comic in Portland straight down to having his own, you know, sitcom show that he was working on and producing a show. So you can do it that way. Like there are definitely different venues that you can take. Wow, there's there's so many options. It almost seems daunting because it's like, I mean, for me at least, I'm just right now. I'm just trying to, you know, maximize my stage time while I'm here and meet as many people as possible. Yeah, I mean, the best thing to do I, is I who you want to be. Like, I look at Ron White and he tours and he makes a hundred thousand dollars a show doing big theaters and big casinos, and fluffy. Like, I'm more of a novelty comic. Um, I'm not a Roseanne or a Rosie that wants to do, you know, those kinds of sitcom shows. I love being on stage. That's definitely where I shine. Um, I'm not, I don't have any acting skills, although I've got to do some stuff because you'll just be in the right place at the right time and stuff happens. What was they, that? I can't talk about it. Are you really? Yeah. Okay. But it, it it's exciting stuff. Like they'll just be like, Hey, we need somebody to fill in here. I got to fill in for Sarah Silverman one day. And I was like, I had no idea. They were just like, Hey, you're here. You want to do this? You don't say no. Uh, especially if Dana asks you to do something, you just go, sure. And then you fake it till you make it and go do it. Um, and that happens with comics because they want it, the novelty. I mean, that happened with fluffy, you know, he got to be in one of the magic mics, the DJ in the background of, so it happens with Ron white. He got to be, Stagehand in a big was that Showtime? What was the name of that movie? Something where he was a big road roadies, yeah, he was the road guy in roadies. So they definitely bring com comedians in for cameos, so you got to be ready for that. But if it's what you want to really be an actor, a comedic actor, 
you just have to decide what you want. I mean, some people want to be like Jeff Dye did great hosting game shows and hosting MTV. That's the first thing he got was that, um, what do you do for money? Jeff got that where he's hosting it and they're joking around in the car and they had um, headsets on and sent people in to see what they would do for money. And I think Brian Moot and uh, a couple of the other guys from LA got on that. So you have to be in LA to do the game show stuff and to do the, you know, what's up with the eighties and the nineties, those little comic clips. And you have to be down there to be, to see, be seen by showcasers and to be um, put in the improv. I mean, if you get in the improv circuit, that's so many clubs that you're booked into right away. So you just have to decide what your heart wants. Do you want the TV fame or do you want the stage, you know, stage fame? Or do you just want to tour and make a living doing stand-up? Because if someone told me this is all you get to do is go to a different town every night. We're in Puyallup tonight. It's my birthday. But it... Happy you, birthday. Yay. If you just get to do make people laugh for a living, I would say, um, wow, I never thought I'd, I would get here like I remember watching Harold Gomez once and thinking there is no way I could do an hour I couldn't stand up there for an hour like I just want to be a feature my whole life and then now looking back at everything I've done and everywhere I've headlined there's there's no way I wouldn't have wanted to do this I was in Kalamath Falls and there was a cerebral palsy guy in a chair and it was his 21st birthday and they were doing like those stupid shots where you get it all over your face, which was weird because he was drooling already. Like, you know, yeah, like, God, don't, don't make it worse. Like, God, give him a rag. And I heard him say, um, this is the best night of my life. Like, um, and I just like a little tear came and I was doing a joke where my head was down and I just couldn't bring my head up because I started like, it was so emotional. And I just looked at him and I said, no, man, this is the best night of my life where Aww. you feel like you're supposed to be in your shoes that that's what this is my talent this is what my you know higher power wanted me this is where i'm supposed to be a lot of people don't have that feeling ever um and i've had that feeling a lot that this was what i was supposed to do so i think if someone said hey you're never gonna be um you're never gonna get the email from last comic standing or america's got talent that you're on the show like this is it you just get to tour the country making people laugh for a living i'd be like i think i'm okay with that like not so bad. Are, this is the dream anyway. And it gets easier. Like, the MC spot, nobody thinks the MC's funny. They think that's <laughs> somebody. So the feature spot, they're like, uh, this isn't the headliner. This is just somebody working at. But by the time they go, you're a headliner tonight, everyone sits up. They're done eating. They're not chewing. They're not, you know, they're drunk. They're ready. Like, so the spots get easier. That's all I can tell the guys is hang in there because it, it gets a lot easier. That's true. They're more receptive. Super receptive. But we can go out there and just, like, why'd you wear that shirt tonight? Ah! <laughs> but if you went out there earlier in the show and said, why'd you wear that shirt tonight? You're just a cocky guy. They don't know yet. They're, and they're thinking, oh, he doesn't have any jokes? Like, why is he picking on me? Does He doesn't have any jokes. You don't got any jokes? That's probably what the guy would say to you. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it gets easier. Um... What so you mentioned uh, sometimes like if you want to be on like TV stuff, it's better to go to LA uh, or at least spend some time there. What what's your opinion on uh, you know the geographic location of where you're at for comedy? Like 
do you have a uh, philosophy on should you spend more time in a smaller scene and then move to a bigger scene? Yeah, or? I mean, there's some scenes that are really great for developing. Um, Denver is amazing for the programs that they have for, they actually have like new talent coordinators that help you get, you know, scheduled five minutes and 10 minutes at each club. But Seattle, if you um, spread your hand out and just make like an open five with your hand, Seattle has so many clubs because you can go up to Calgary and Edmonton. There's like 14 clubs within that area. You can go to Vancouver, Canada, but you can go all the way across all the way across Montana and into Colorado. You can work those clubs all the way down into Nevada. And then you cover California with your thumb. So it's just, this, it's a great, there's so many open mics in Seattle where you can get up. You can do three open mics in a night. Hans Kim would do three open mics in a night here sometimes. Yeah. He would do music mics, right? Yeah. Where you just bop in and do, you know, one or two and he just moved on. He's in New York now and New York's a whole different beast. I mean, that's, you know, where artists are discovered, but you got to have your, you got to have an hour down before you go out there. If you get discovered and you don't have your chops, you just look silly. So do you think, does it make more sense to like develop in a smaller scene and then move or? Yeah. What are you going to write about if you haven't gone out and done everything on the road and you haven't done Wyoming and Montana? And if you just go to New York or California and you haven't experienced everything, you have a limited you have limited, especially how young you, you guys are, like you haven't been married and had kids and you don't have tons of relationships to write about. And a lot of the, if you take the top five comics right now, the high money paid comedians, they're writing about relationships. They're writing about their kids and their wife. And you know, every album Louis CK put out was about everything that pisses him off. So you have to still live that you have to live your life and have experiences before people want to hear about them. People are going to, that's your, the big thing that you're going to have to overcome is people are going to look at you and go, what do you have to talk to me about? I've been here 50 years. Like you're going to have to get over. Miles Weber was one of the youngest people to ever win the San Francisco comedy competition. How old was he? I think he was 24 when he won. 25 maybe. But he was young when he started. And I remember the first night I met Miles, there was a bunch of headliners talking shit about him. And he was putting up his first poster to headline. And I don't think he was even 21 yet. He might have just been 21. And I walked up behind him and I go, you must be funny if they're talking shit about you. Um, and I said, you know, come up and I'll help you in the Northwest. We'll help you get around. You need to get out of this town. So a lot of times you just need to get out of the town that you start in and spread out and really take your jokes. Because if you do the open mic over and over, they're gonna tell you, oh, you need to bring new material, we're tired of the jokes you're doing. But if you never get those jokes, you know, time-tested and true, like you know they're gonna work every time you tell them, then you can't take them out. So you gotta move around. You can't just keep telling the jokes in the same place. People will get tired of it. And you'll never get jokes to the point where they're they're super ready to go. And the trick to telling a joke over and over is to tell it like you're telling it for the very first time. Yeah, how do you keep that flame alive? You learn to put little words in that make it different. Like, oh my God, do you ever go to a birthday party and look at the size of the cake and then count the people and think, fuck, I gotta kill somebody? <laughs> See, I just said it like, oh my God, do you ever, cause I just made it like, it just came up in my head. 
like I was thinking of it. You made it sound like you would naturally yeah. like, flow in the conversation. Yeah. So the natural flow and that um, you're not trying to deliver a joke. The delivering a joke would just be, um, so I went to a birthday party and I counted the people and there wasn't enough cake. And I thought, oh man, I have to kill somebody. So that's telling a joke. Um, so you find the, the flow and the way to make it, you know, super conversational. Like I think God's fat too. I was just sitting there the other day and it came to my mind that clouds are fluffy. And I was thinking, what if you go to heaven and it's not the light, it's just God opening up the refrigerator. So you have to tell it like you're talking to your friends in your living room. Like the Letterman guy that booked for Letterman, Eddie Brill, he said it has to be conversational. Like if you lose that, I watched the open mic the other night and some guys went up and they're just like ripping off their jokes, reading, reading, ripping, reading, ripping, reading, ripping. And it was like no interaction with the audience. He didn't stop to pause. He didn't even look to see if they were looking at him. And it's like, it's not TV. It's live stand-up comedy. There has to be a connection with you and the audience. If you don't have them by the first or second joke, you better figure out a way to slow down and look around and at least smile. At least acknowledge that you're sucking. But those guys <laughs> that just stand there and eat crap for, and then, and then go, oh, you guys aren't a very good crowd. Mm, it's not. The, it's never the crowd. Once you get it through your mind that it's never the crowd, life's a lot easier. Yeah, you just you're more accountable. It's never the crowd. It's it's never. It can't be the crowd. You got to figure out a way to connect, look around the room, figure out what joke's going to start first. The person in front of you is swinging a jump rope. Ty Burnett used to jump in front of all of us all the time before he went to Hollywood. And we had to figure out how to follow Ty Burnett on a constant basis. He was killing it. And it's like a jump rope. You got to figure out their rhythm and find a joke that matches their rhythm. And that's what you start with. Then you slow them down to your pace. But you better walk out there with just as much heat as the guy from two seconds ago. Or they're just going to go, oh, God, we've seen the, We've already seen the funny. That's so interesting. Yeah, I never thought of it like that. Um, can you walk me through, uh, changing the topic a little bit, what was the trajectory of your career like in comedy? Well, it's a lot different because I had a kid to raise. So he was really young when I started, and then I needed to take a break for a while. Um, How old were you when you first started after doing your DJing? Uh, I think I was like 28 or 29 before I really got, but I was definitely 40 when I hit it full time. When I moved out of Tacoma to Seattle, um, the last 10 years, I've just totally hit it nonstop full time. And I went out on the road as a feature and really did the work building the second half hour. A lot of guys will take the first half and just stretch it and make it like strung out instead of actually writing your second half hour. So you, you need to write your first half hour and your second half hour. And your first half hour is usually like your who, what, when, where, why, and how. Like who I am. Yeah, I'm from Montana or I'm from here. I'm from, you know, your what. Um, you're wise, you're where we used to go to Grand Canyon and my dad lost me. So usually find your stories on your who, what, when, where, why. Your second half hour is usually more about what you believe in and your opinions and your relationships with people. 
So it'll, it's interesting when you put those all together, then it forms an act. And someone will come up to you for the first time and they'll be like, oh man, I loved your act tonight. You're like, <gasps> he said act. He said act. So you know you finally put everything together that flows with like flirty fat lady confidence that it formed an act. So you start with jokes and then you form bits and then you form a set and then you get an act. Uh, and for me, I just kept like hitting the road. I did 300,000 miles, I think, in two years in a Mitsubishi um, until wow. that was featuring until the guys were like, you know, you should headline. So I went out and headlined everywhere else but here. And I didn't tell anyone I was headlining. I didn't brag about it anywhere or anything. And I, I came home and people were like, man, you should be headlining. And I was just like, uh-huh, yeah. But I never said headliner. I just said closer. Like, until they call you a headliner, you shouldn't really use the word headliner until people pay to see you. Uh, and then it got to the point where it was, uh, it was undeniable that I had the time to do it. And I just started headlining more and more. So now it's to the point where they say don't go to LA until you're invited or don't go to New York until you're invited. And those invitations are starting to come like with the, the half hour and there's a lot of other things happening that you, you just start getting invited to do shows and getting invited to open for different people. So you jumped right into the road kind of like throughout what were you doing from your thirties? Like, what was the, did you ever start here and like, just do mics? Like, how did it? Yeah. Well, I managed clubs. So while I was raising my kid, I managed the Tacoma underground and that's a great way for comics to get exposure is because you, you see different headliners every week and you get a chance to ask them questions and see different styles and different combinations. And you can ask them how they got to where they're at or how they got, you know, their specials or their management or um, so I managed that and then I moved to Seattle and managed a club called the main stage, which isn't here anymore. So I was like really connected when I couldn't tour when my son was young, I was really connected by working in the clubs. Okay. So that was kind of the move. Yeah. And I booked my own room while I was DJing. I, I would book my own room out on Monday nights and that's where like, um, Joey Diaz, do you know Joey Coco Diaz from Rogan's podcast or I know Yoshi? Yoshi, Yoshi's on Rogan's podcast all the time. And um, a lot of those guys, Hennigan when he was young, and um, Josh Wolf who opens for Larry the Cable Guy all the time. That's where a lot of those guys would come and work on their sets every Monday night. So just having your own room sometimes can really. If you have a day job, having your own room once a week can really put you in a position where I would go up and in between every other comic, I would do two minutes and I'd go back and I'd write out what I wanted to try next. That's why I have so many one-liners. Like my favorite superheroes are Baskin and Robin. That's good. Or I like eating in bed because everything's a nap. You can practice all those one-liners. You have to have those in your pocket to get a room back if you lose it. You have to be able to throw one liner down and then go into your bits. So having your own room sometimes really helps. That's that's cool. Um, yeah, you're you're in a position of like you have a home base, pretty much just to work on your stuff and it's I get so wait were you producing the at this show or were you more just? Yeah, back then we didn't really have the word producers like, but I guess I was the producer. And the host. 
and I, I ran a contest every Monday. So the first 10 comics that showed up would do 10 minutes each and the audience would vote on who the best 10 was and they'd win a hundred dollars. And then after that, anybody else that showed up could go up and do five minutes. But the first 10 that signed up and we just kind of rotate who'd win the hundred bucks every week. So the club, but, um, we did it where it was a like industry night. So all the strip club girls and all the people that worked all weekend long at the bars, all the bartenders and everyone would show up. So it got to the point where it was like a, you know, really good Monday night for the club. And I would make enough money off that Monday night that I didn't have to work if I didn't want to, because I got a percentage. We used to get percentages from the clubs and paid to do the shows. So it'd be a really good Monday. Wow, that's great. What were uh, some of the major? I'm looking at my puppy. Oh. <laughs> well, what were some of your major milestones for like your comedy career? Um, I think that it progresses. Like at the time, you think it's such a big deal. Like I won uh, funniest person in Everett, but I wouldn't even use that as a credit now. Like funniest person in Everett. That's kind of you know. Um, but definitely winning, uh, like hard rock was cool winning that I've done, um, shooting the half hour special, super fun. Um, getting to meet Ron White and Dana Carvey and Rob Schneider. I got to work a week in Tahoe with the unknown comic. Who's a guy that used to have a reality kind of game show called the gong show. And he used to come out with a bag on his head and tell jokes. And That's so weird. Yeah. I got to work a week, like in Tahoe, I got to meet. The guy that held, I worked for um, Carl LeBeau, who's the guy that held Sam Kennison when he died. Um, so sometimes for me, it's sitting in the room with with the legends and listening to the stories. Definitely working with Stanhope in the early years until I realized how crazy that is. Like, um, especially with Andy and everyone that tours with him. I mean. It's certainly a lifestyle that you have to, it was as crazy as the strip clubs. Um, it's definitely life in the fast lane. So I guess shooting the half hour special was where we're at now. Are you thinking about any career moves? Yeah, we're looking for uh, an apartment in LA right now. Oh, so you're gonna go down there. Half, yeah, part-time. Interesting. How did you get into meeting like the Carvey family and Rob Schneider and I think that the further up in the, um, if you work clean and you have a really good reputation, you get um, booker. Bookers are people that book you for a show. Agents are people that buy talent for shows. Um, and I have a really good um, booking agent. And once they are confident um, that you can do a really good job, they'll put you in front of different people to open for. So how did you get your representation? Um, I think that you have to just, I don't have an agent agent yet, like LA agent, like, and like you have to go down and go to their showcases. And I mean, that's the next step for me. That's cool. Um, I, I say that's cool. That's like, I feel like that's my go-to. I'm like, no, oh, that's cool. Interesting. But it's this gen is genuinely interesting. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Come on. So, Can you say it on stage? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, or that's cool. 
No. <laughs> well, I, we all have a tell on stage. When I lose, I say my... the, I say it's interesting. That's I say no. that too much. Oh, that's interesting. I'm like, it's interesting how that's what I say too much. When I lose my spot in my head on stage, I say, "You guys are a really great crowd." That's my go-to, and usually it's only once in a night. But when I was younger, comic, it was often. I would lose it often. She's just complimenting the crowd the whole night. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned that, uh, like your process for developing a half hour could you elaborate on that i thought that was really interesting yeah and i think when you very first start a really good thing to do is take a notebook and just an empty notebook and in every corner of the page like write one through 21 however old you are write every one of your relatives names write every holiday write every first time like first kiss first car first Dance all for, the security questions yeah, for your like your, bank yeah, account. Yeah, for name of your first dog. Um, yeah, write all <laughs> the questions up in a corner. So you just have an empty notebook and there's a subject in every corner, right? And then every day just open it up. Like, let's do it right now. It just landed on six. You're six years old. Tell me a funny story about when you were six. When I'm six? What did I do when I... I think I was, I was at a birthday party and it was like my friend's birthday and I got everyone around the table to sing... Uh, pee pee poopy, and then like everyone was chanting it and singing it. See how and funny I, pee pee poopy is. And I was so happy, oh, and I'm like, I got everyone to sing and stuff, and I was like so proud that I led this charge, and my mom was really mad at me. So you should write that down under your on your page that says six, and then think about how funny that is. I mean, pee pee poo poo. That was it. That was the song. Poo poo. You nailed pee, it. Pee. <laughs> that's you how went. Audience to chant pee pee poo poo. I mean that, that's a great bit right there. That's a that's three minutes. On pee pee poo poo. <laughs> Just three minutes. Does that that falls under caveman? No, no, that <laughs> falls under um, children. I mean, it, our job is to evoke emotion and maybe to call back some memories for them. Do you remember what like your toys were? Do you remember what you got for your sixth birthday? I would always get dinosaurs, like little toy dinosaurs. Oh, uh, did you make your dinosaurs pee pee poo Because that's a lot of pee pee poo poo. Uh. Dinosaur poo poo. <laughs> I would like build like zoos. Of dinosaurs, I like Jurassic so. Parks, basically. Uh. I feel like I don't know. I don't. I don't dig that. The only stuff I mentioned about my childhood on stage is how I would like choke on mozzarella sticks. Cause that was kind of funny. Why would they keep giving them to you? My dad would be like, "Give me mozzarella sticks," and then I just choke on them. See, that's a great bit about how you don't think your dad really wanted you around because he knew you choked on mozzarella <laughs> sticks, and then like every time they'd you'd be at dinner and. They'd want a night out, but you were sitting there, and they'd be like, "Yeah, we'll have a plate of the mozzarella." <laughs> and I'd get super excited, and then I'd be like, ah, ah. "What the fuck's the matter with you?" And they'd like pull, literally open up my like throat and reach in and like pull out this. I think your dad didn't like you, or he enjoyed being the hero. Maybe your dad had a narcissistic hero thing, like he needed to. Maybe it turned your mom on, like. Okay. See, that just went weird. <laughs> Pulling the cheese out of no, my No, I mean, throat. maybe mom went home and went, thank you for saving our baby again. <laughs> like, maybe that's what your dad had to do every Saturday night, just to... The hero complex. Yeah, just to get it going. What's your mom's name? Nancy. Maybe that's what Nancy liked. <laughs> oh, you saved our baby again. <laughs> <laughs> so you write that book out, and then every day... Commit yourself. Do you write 15 minutes every day? I don't. So that commits you to, you know, some discipline of at least writing every... And then try those out until you find 
Like the other night, I tried out a joke on Thursday night at the hangar. Um, the other day, I was sitting there thinking about my birthday and that my brother and sister's birthdays are five years apart on the same day. And so I looked on the calendar to figure out that is nine months away from my dad's birthday. Wow. Like both my brother and sister are birthday babies from my dad's birthday. And I thought my dad got laid twice in five years. <laughs> On his birthday. And That's just, hilarious. I didn't know it was going to be funny, but the crowd died. And I was like, oh, I guess it is funny to figure out that when your parents had sex. So I went back nine months before I was born, and it's the 4th of July. So my dad was definitely a holiday guy. Like, That's so funny. I wonder what it is for me. Nine when's months, your birthday? March 31st. So that is what I can do math. It's like the end of July. When's your dad's birthday? Like the first week of August, probably March fifteenth. Yeah. Wait, what You're is a summer, that? Summer baby, Wait, like hot summer nights. Three minus nine, negative. Oh, it was June thirty first. Yeah. June. Yeah, you may be Fourth of July too. Baby. Right in there, Fourth of July babies. Bang bang, bang bang, pew pew. <laughs> so wait, what? Um. That's fireworks. The fireworks babies. That's how I came out. Sweet. So what? Okay, wait, wait. So go back to where were we with the? I haven't had my Adderall yet. <laughs> where were we with the the thirty minute thing? Yeah. So you go through your notebook and then uh, put when you organize your thirty minutes. You know you got to figure out your six topics because you write in like five minute blocks. So. If you put down like who, what, when, where, why, and how, and then you go through all your jokes and maybe your who is, um, who you are and where, like my name, blah, 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 blah. You put all the jokes that have to do with who you are into that category and then rearrange them till they're a good bit. And then you put all your what, like, what's the deal with, you put those all in there. You're where, like maybe every time you lived in Montana or you lived in you know, your stories of camping or something, those all go in one. So once you organize your jokes, you'll see that you have, you know, a 30 minute set. And then you just got to figure out what to open with every time and what to close with every time that works. A lot of times you'll have to switch them around. I see a lot of mistakes with young comics to where they'll tell their joke and they're in the middle of the joke and they'll blow the punchline and then they'll keep saying something about the joke. And all you need to do is pick up that part of the joke that hits the hardest and move it to the end, they're, they're revealing their punchlines way too early. And it's like that has, the punchline has to go on the end of the joke. Like it has to be the boom. They call it the punchline. They don't call it like the, the, the drizzle outline. Like it has to be the funniest part of the joke. So a lot of times I'll just walk up to comics and go, Hey, that, that part of your joke where you're blowing the joke and then it's not working afterwards. You got to take that and move it to the end of the joke. I see that a lot where it's like too long and then they'll do the punchline and then keep saying things. Doesn't it like it just detracts. Yeah. So you got to go out on the road. The great thing about going out on the road is you're with someone that's better than you. So when you go out on the road, just take advice from the headliners and every show, have them go over your set with you. Um, headliners are really up for doing that unless you're shut down to any help. That's cool. So that's cool. Again, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. What's up? 
what is life on the road like? Um, we totally meandered. I don't know. Yeah, you get up. There's so many ways You get up and you drive eight or nine hours sometimes. You do the show and then you go back to your hotel room and try to sleep. And you get up and you... You mean like drug-wise or like time-wise? Both. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm old, so I have to have a pill to go to sleep and a pill to get up and a pill to drive and a pill to get me there and a pill to promote... No, I'm just kidding. Um... <laughs> You know, there's definitely the weed smoking comics. You should match yourself. Smoking comics should match with other smoking comics. Because if you're in a car for eight hours with someone that smokes and you don't, and you have to pull over for them, ugh. Or if you have to let them smoke in your car because it, you don't have time to pull over. Like, smoking comics are the worst. And especially if they're insecure about asking for smoking. Like I, had a one, I had one girl on the road where, like, She'd be like, can I smoke? And be like, yeah. And then you'd pull over and she'd be like, I know you're mad at me. because No, man, just smoke your cigarette and get back in the car. There's no time for drama on the road. Just get in the car. Yeah. So it's better if you're matched with people that are like you. Like, it's like a roommate, a mobile roommate. Yeah. How long have you, what's the longest you've been on the road? Do you want to take a break? Nope. Um, I think probably six weeks. Sleeping in Walmart parking lots if you don't have a hotel, like, all the way across. I, well, I went all the way. We drove all the way to New York and all the way back. I think I was gone, like, six, maybe eight weeks. That's long. And another avenue for you guys, because you're young, are the colleges. Having a college agent. I mean, there's commercial agents, college agents, club agents, road agents. I mean, there's all different kinds of agents, too. Speaking engagement agents. So... Um, but definitely the college agents, there's a group that you go to like a convention called NACA and you pay, I think 750, maybe 850 now. And you pay a fee and you get to go showcase if you have an agent at NACA, the college conference and all the people that like the presidents that are voted in for the class, they go and they pick the entertainment for the year for the college. So you get to set your rate. Once you get an act together, you can get an agent for your college, and then they'll send you to NACA, and then you do a showcase, and then the girls or the guys that book the shows at the colleges walk around the convention, and they get to your booth and say, oh, we really want you. We thought you were funny. And your agent will say, well, his rate is 1200 He's an opener for big acts. So if they're bringing in you know, Josh Blue for 5000 they know they can hire you for 1200 to open in front of them. And that's, you can book, I mean, I know some comics that book 20, 30, 40 shows a, at a day at NACA. So you can book all your that's college. That's like $50,000. Right, you can just be a college comic. What's that process like for NACA? What, walk me through it. So you wanna get your, if you're showcasing for NACA, for, you wanna get your showcase set really tight, but you have to make sure you have the half hour like if you're if you're going into a half hour so you you need an agent to see you and they have auditions like just like they have cruise ship auditions they have college auditions they have reality show auditions they have each um, festival auditions so you have to make sure that you're in with the clubs like right now Dave Dennison and Angela will definitely help comics get into Vancouver Comedy Festival. They go to the Montreal Comedy Festival. For young comics, their goal should be to be in fresh faces at Montreal. And that's where you can get different agents and you can get different um, 
Comedy Central is definitely there. They definitely book right out of there. I think they flew Gabe straight from uh, Montreal to L.A. to do a taping. So wow, you got to get into where you want to be for them to see you. So what's the first step for a comedian in a local scene or a big scene or whatever? They're just doing mics, doing some shows. What's the first step they need to do to get into NACA? You have to get your set clean so that a college and a college set has to be um, non-offensive. It certainly can't offend any. A college is is a community of every kind of ethnicity. Like it's everyone. It's a group. It's a you can't offend. So it can't be a set that offends any race or or any gender. Any it, it can't be offensive. It has to just be really great. Uh, funny material about your your family or relationships or your you're pretty safe doing family and relationship material yeah or life material or or facebook or twitter or um you know dating things that college students will relate to is definitely things you did in college are good things to write about for that and then when you have your set together you know go to a club and talk to the club owners and ask them you know, when there's a NACA showcase or Ron Reed is a local guy that used to do college showcases to make sure that the NACA people could see you, the NACA agents. So you have to figure out in your each in your comedy community who's putting on those showcases and how do you get on them. So you have to get a NACA agent before you can do NACA at all. Before sure. You can pay or whatever. Sure. And you have to get on a showcase to get an agent. Um, one way to do it, definitely. There's three competitions in the United States that matter, and that's the Boston Comedy Festival, San Francisco Comedy Competition, the Seattle Comedy Competition. Each night in that festival, there's one night that's industry night, and that's a night where the judges are you know, brought in, and they're the industry people. Sometimes they're the NACA people. Sometimes they're Comedy Central. Sometimes they're NBC. You can go to Stand Up NBC right now is a gateway to get to college shows. Because they stand do. up NBC, yeah, stand up NBC does ten cities a year, and they come to ten different cities and they alternate it. It used to be um, stand up for diversity, so it used to be a competition where you could only enter if you were diverse. That's not the CBS diversity. No, that's different. Stand up for NBC is um, a competition that comes out every year. I um, was a finalist for Seattle, so stand up NBC then takes the top 10 down to Los Angeles and you get or top eight and you get to showcase and show off down there. So people definitely have been pulled from there for shows. That's how Ron punches got his shows too. Interesting. So that, that, that sounds like a, a smart move to figure out where those are and get on them. But how do you get on them? You have to be like in the scene. You have to be well, well connected. Um, you do. In fact, comics had auditions. I went and stood in line when I did stand up NBC and there was 200 people in line and they only pulled two people from the line. And I was what? one of them. And then we went into the room and how did was, they choose? What? You from just go line? up and do one minute audition. No, one minute. No, everyone got to do go up and go on stage and two people from the whole line got picked. So then we went to the second part, which was comics. And I walked in a room and there was like 60 comedians. And I was like, hey, they all got picked from the parlor. Like parlor said, make, they told parlor to make a list. Cause in Bellevue? No, it's when the parlor was in Seattle too. Okay. And so um, 
Parlor submitted their comics, so the next phase was all the comics auditioning. I think that was only a minute long too, and then they picked two people from from our group and six people total to do the final audition. So me and Tyler Smith made it past the that round, and we were the top two. But you can go, um, you can see when their auditions are. I think it's just stand up on um, stand up NBC on Facebook. So that's the main one for booking, getting a college agent. Well, if and that's you, not even just college, right? That's like industry. Yeah, it's just stand-up NBC. Um, well, if you're in the top eight or the top ten, it definitely, if you win it, NBC gives you a development deal, and they're touring with those comics um, on college campuses. That's very cool. Yeah, I definitely want to get into college, so I'm going to look into that. So real quick, I'm just going to ask you some quick advice questions for those aspiring comics out there. Um, what uh, advice would you give a comic that's trying to get into a festival? Well, the great thing about festivals is they take comics at all levels. And they also take like volunteers to do the ticket booth, volunteers to run donut runs, volunteers to drive the comics. So don't be afraid to just jump in and help participate in the beginning because the further up in your career you get, the um, more you'll just get invited to them without having to submit to them. But the coolest thing is, is once you're hanging around, they'll realize that you're someone that's gonna be around for a while. And there's a lot of nights where they realize they have more time and they'll be like, hey man, can you just do five minutes? So um, if you're a working comic, you don't really hang out at festivals because you're working. They can't afford to take a week off. I don't do very many festivals because they're not, the only paid spots are the really celebrities that come in. Like there's very few paid spots at a festival. It's only like the Janine Garofalo's or the, you know, the top four or five people are the paid ones. So you don't really have time to network. I don't really have a week off of comedy just to hang out with other comics. I can do that at my house every day. Yeah. I mean, but it is a great opportunity when you're young. Some of them are really, really good. But to do the competitions where you have a chance at winning money and getting exposure, you want to make sure that there's at least industry. The Mile High, Lucas Seeley runs the Montana Mile High Comedy Competition. They definitely have, Lucas is in LA all the time. He, he has a regular room at the comedy store in the belly room. So he brings real industry people up to Montana. So that's a great one to submit to. Um, Bridgetown is definitely a popular one. For, um, I think they discontinued it. Oh, for Portland? I don't know. I heard um, something like that. Because probably they got lost on all the bridges. That's a lot. <laughs> so the Seattle, San Francisco, Boston. But Montreal, I mean, if you can ever go to the LOL Comedy Festival in Montreal, I mean, that's the biggest, definitely the, the most industry. Cool. What uh, advice would you give someone that wants to get, you know, break onto a late night show? Well... I, you know, that just happened for one of us. Kelsey Cook from uh, Spokane slash Seattle, now LA, just got on last night. So um, there's different routes. I mean, you don't know. Gabe, uh, like you can be seen at Montreal or seen at a festival or definitely these showcases. They do um, different showcases in New York and different showcases in LA where the actual bookers come out from the show. To watch so you never really know what they're looking for or how many people they have in line or how many spots they have open for it sometimes they'll have you second in line in case there's a fallout so you just got to keep pounding at it 
Pounding. Pounding at it. So I wanted to ask you uh, one more question because this is really interesting about you. You have a seemingly comedy house or a reputation for having a comedy house where you have you house comedians and yeah i'm a mama bear so a lot of times on our um, nights off like if i'm in colorado and i'm only working um friday saturday and sunday at comedy works and then you have to be somewhere tuesday you'll have a night off and you can't it's a hundred dollars 150 dollars to rent a hotel so we all double up or um couch up or cow search up or surf up we we definitely share our facilities as often as we can. My house seems to acquire more comics. One time, the um, Gen, Gen X comedy tour came through, and I thought it was just Richie Stratton, but it was eight comics. And I looked at my husband, and I was like, man, we better order some pizza. So there was comedians laying all over and blow-up mattresses and lines for the shower. So it can definitely accumulate quickly. How, at any given moment, how many comics do you have? Usually one or two. One and or two. And the dog. Your dog's cute. Usually more comics when we're not even home, which is funny. We all tend to have keys for each other's houses. But I stay at their house, too. Like, wherever I can, we save money. It's the easiest thing to do out on the road. Sam Damaris comes here. He's a buddy from Texas. He comes here a lot and stays for weeks. Usually has my car. Really? Weeks? Wow, that's so generous. Tommy comes for a while. Tommy used to stay a lot after he won Seattle. Because they're from another market, and if they come and they win the competition, they can work four or five weeks in a row at every small town and every um, comedy club. And I can help get them in all the ones that I know here. They can help get me in all the ones they know there. You know, Sam can get us in all the ones he knows in Texas. So... If you make friends with comics all across the country, you've automatically put yourself into five or six or seven other markets. So Sam could call me and tell me when his weeks are up here, and I can help him book his weeks up here. He can help me book my weeks down there. So we just kind of trade off that way. That's cool. So you'll stay at his place or something? Yeah. And he'll stay here. That's very cool. Um, is there anything you want to plug about yourself coming up no, that people should check a, out? It's a, uh, oh, my show drops on March 20th on Ride TV, which is also like, I think on Dish Network and they're blending over with CMT. So we, we don't know how, when CMT is going to do it. So it's exciting. It's a half hour comedy special with Chad Prather and he's uh, the political cowboy. It's a little more conservative, uh, station, but, uh, it was fun shooting it. Sweet. Ride TV. Ride, ride. Ride TV. Well, cool. Thank you, Susan. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Good luck. Stick in there. Do the time. Cool. Thank you. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for tuning into Working Comic Podcast. There's a new episode every week where I interview writers, directors, comedians, producers, any kind of creative thing you can think of, and also the business side of things. So club owners, agents, managers, festival runners, all that stuff. So tune in every week and uh, also follow me on social media at the Austin Nasso on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can also catch me on YouTube with Cha Bros, C-H-A-A Bros, one word. Uh, we have some funny videos up, so check it out. Thanks, guys.